Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. <clears throat> I think that can seem to us sometimes like a fairly innocuous statement, a nice saying, a way to describe the Son of God becoming man, because we've heard it so many times that although uh, we may believe it, it doesn't necessarily garner a significant reaction on our part today because it has become commonplace in the language of the Christian. We're simply uh, used to hearing that with so much that I think we don't react to it much anymore, if at all. But make no mistake, when John penned those words in the first century based on Jesus' own claims of divinity, which were all, every one of them, substantiated by his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. When John wrote those words, there was nothing commonplace or nice or harmless about them. In fact, those words ignited a firestorm that rocked the Jewish world to its very core and transformed the rest of the world forever. The idea that the Word, the Son of God Himself, the Messiah, the Christ, had taken on human flesh and come to the earth was earth-shattering to those who first heard it. It was utterly shocking to say to a first century Hebrew that the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the one that they had set their hopes and dreams on, the focus of their very existence had come in the form of a man, and specifically the man Jesus of Nazareth. That was as inflammatory of a statement that anyone could ever make. And yet Jesus' entire ministry on earth seemed like it was one moment just like that after another, after another, after another. Which is exactly why so many of the religious Jews wanted to kill him. Because every time he opened his mouth, he completely deconstructed their entire understanding of what it meant to follow God with one gut-wrenching statement after another that appalled them. He shocked them and enraged them and challenged every understanding of God and the holy scriptures that they held so dear. And so today, as we finish the back half of John chapter 7 in our sermon series, The Gospel According to John, we find Jesus making another one of those statements that, that challenges and infuriates the Jews to the point that they're trying to figure out how they can kill him. And so as we read through the story, you're going to understand why. But I want to say something about this story just before we read it. Because I think it could be very easy for us this morning to read through some familiar passages of Scripture and then simply consider a good moral lesson that we can glean from it and nothing more. Without allowing this word of God to rock us at our very core. The way that it did for those who heard it then. And yet if we take the time and a little effort to truly consider just what Jesus was actually saying here. It will rock us to our core. It will challenge us at the most fundamental levels of our thinking and daily living, which is exactly what the Word of God should do anytime we consider it earnestly. So I just want us to read and reflect this morning with ears to hear and with hearts to receive because we're getting ready to feed on the living Word of God. And if, if you will let them, these words of Christ will change your life today. So let's turn there to John chapter 7 
And we'll pick up where we left off last week with a, a message entitled, Come to Me and Drink. And just to set the scene here, Jesus and his disciples have gone up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, which was one of the three biggest feasts of the year for the Jews. In fact, it was so important that it was required by law that all Jews attend this feast. And about midway through this week-long celebration, Jesus goes into the temple and begins teaching, which as usual stirs up a lot of controversy because not only has he not had the educational pedigree of the religious teachers of the day, but he's teaching some exceptionally radical ideas here, as usual. We saw in chapter 6 before this feast that he claimed to be the bread of life. And from that point, right up through this chapter, Jesus claims that he has been sent by God sent from heaven uh, to represent the Father and to teach them about the Father and about the Father's will, and that ultimately they must believe in Him and Jesus if they're to have eternal life. And again, these were especially radical and highly charged claims because they, they weren't just different or new teachings. They challenged the most basic understanding for the Jews of what it meant to be a true follower of God which is what their entire existence revolved around. They considered themselves to be God's people, which of course they were. And along comes this man, Jesus, who is making statements and teaching ideas and concepts with authority, I might add, that could and ultimately did altogether unravel their long-held religious beliefs. So let's pick up the story now with verses 25 through 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So uh, Jesus is making all of these claims and continuing to make the case that he's been sent from God. And so in addition to the uh, consternation that he's drawing from among the religious leadership, the people at large are getting all stirred up and debating amongst themselves as to Jesus' true identity. And there were uh, Jewish rabbis at the time who viewed the coming of the Messiah in strictly apocalyptic terms. They taught that when the Messiah did appear, that no one would know where he came from, that he would very suddenly and abruptly burst onto the scene to procure salvation for Israel. And yet there were others at the same time, as we'll see, who were more certain about the Messiah's origins based on the scriptures. And so here they are all arguing about this, about where he comes from. And of course, as we saw last week, Jesus knew the hearts of all men. And yet rather than arguing about his earthly origins, which he could have, being from Bethlehem or Galilee and making his case from that perspective, he simply draws their attention back to the Father. And it was driving the religious leaders crazy because Jesus refused to conform to their ideas of who he was and how they thought he should behave. And not much has changed on that front, to be honest, 
for the past 2,000 years. In every age, there are those in the religious establishment who seek to very narrowly define the Messiah into the image that suits their own needs and their own desires. But inevitably, that ends up failing because, first of all, the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, all-present, almighty God is not subject to the limitations of humanity. Even when Jesus walked on the earth as God in the flesh, he was still God. He couldn't be contained by men. He couldn't be limited by their human ideas. He couldn't be silenced and he could not be stopped. And again, nothing has changed in that regard. The moment that we try to limit him by only accepting the portions or parts of him that we think we can manage, he comes along and completely upsets our lives because we cannot control God. No matter how much we think we can, no matter how hard we try, that will fail every single time. When people try to live their lives according to their own pet verses of Scripture with little to no consideration for the rest of Scripture, listen, that never works out. You will either end up frustrated with your life or disillusioned with God when the truth that you're clinging to isn't being validated in your own life experience. Yet that's exactly what happens when we try to live according to some of the word of God. When we uh, misinterpret that word to mean something that it was never intended to mean. But look, people do just that all the time. We see it all of the time where people, even well-meaning people, take hold of a portion of the Christian faith, a portion of the scriptural text, a portion of the teachings of Christ, and then they wager the outcome of their entire lives on an incomplete understanding of who Christ is and what he came to do, what he taught, what he required, what he accepted, and what he rejected, what he promised, and that which he never promised. But when you read this gospel, Jesus very clearly said over and over again, this is all or nothing. You either take all of me or you have no part in me at all. We can't pick out the parts of Jesus that we prefer and then disregard the rest and then expect everything to work out great for us. It doesn't work that way. This is what he's trying to tell everyone repeatedly in this part of the story. And of course, while some of them are not getting it, many of them are. And it's upsetting the religious leaders. Let's keep reading the story. Verses 32 through 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? Okay, so the Pharisees, have, they've heard all that they're willing to listen to. And so they, they issue an official arrest warrant for Jesus and they send out the temple police. These are men derived from the Levites to arrest him with a view, of course, of execution in mind. And Jesus responds with, I'm going to be leaving here soon and where I'm going, you cannot come. And of course, we know now he's referring to the cross. 
primarily, and then, and then certainly his resurrection and ascension back to the Father, but they don't have any idea what he's talking about. So uh, they speculate that maybe he's thinking of spreading his message to the dispersion, which was a, a common Jewish uh, uh, expression that referred to the Greek-speaking Jews that lived outside of Palestine. And so they thought maybe Jesus is going to try and make a quick getaway here before they could arrest him. And of course, not only were they wrong about that, uh, but never could they have imagined, never could they have imagined what he was about to say and do next. Let's keep reading verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. <clears throat> so this is one of those gut-wrenching moments that we were talking about earlier. <clears throat> where Jesus says the most unlikely thing to the most unlikely people at the most unlikely moment. This was absolutely shocking for these religious Jews, especially given the venue and the timing and the, the delivery of this statement. And yet to us now, it seems like not much more than a nice saying to reassure us that Jesus is our source or our supply. But to fully understand the implication of what he was saying here, we have to understand the context in which it was delivered, okay? There were two primary purposes for the Feast of Tabernacles. The first was to remind people of the manna from heaven and that God had provided for them in their wanderings in the wilderness, which is why Jesus talked about the manna in chapter 6 in verses 48 through 51, because this festival was about to begin. And so the celebration of the manna was on everyone's mind. And Jesus, being well aware of what people were thinking, was always keen to teach in a manner that would connect with people where they were at that moment. And so, for instance, he was uh, sitting at, the, the, at Jacob's well and he used that setting in chapter 4 to ask a woman for a drink of water because she was there, of course, to draw water. And he knew that. So he used that context in that moment to engage her in what became a life-altering conversation. Likewise, just before this Feast of Tabernacles, the manna that God provided for his people was on everyone's mind. And so Jesus uses that context to share his message that he was the true bread of life that they must feed on if they were to experience eternal life. <clears throat> okay, and we've talked about this before. It's called contextualization of the gospel. It's a a fancy theological term that refers to the process of packaging the message of the gospel in a way that will relate to your audience. And so depending upon where you are and who you're talking to and what's happening at that moment, you tailor the delivery of the message to fit that context. You don't, you don't change the message, okay? The message is always the same, but the way you deliver it is adapted to have the greatest effect in that moment depending upon the context that you find yourself in. That's contextualization of, of the gospel. And Jesus was the master at contextualizing his message. He knew just what to say, how to say it, and when to say it so as to leverage the greatest effect possible. 
And this passage that we're looking at is possibly the quintessential example of contextualization that we have in Scripture. Because not only was tabernacles celebrated to remind people about the manna, but it was also celebrated to remind people about the water that God provided for his people when they were dying of thirst in the wilderness. And so for seven straight days of this feast, there was a celebration. All of the people brought their tithes and offerings to the temple, and they made daily sacrifices, all of them. In fact, there were so many sacrifices to be made during this feast that it required all 24 divisions of priests to be present to assist in the sacrificial duties. <clears throat> and so they feasted and celebrated for seven straight days while living in these temporary shelters that we talked about last week. They would build out of sticks and leaves to represent the shelters that the people of God lived in in the wilderness. And every day, for each of those first seven days of the feast proper, they would draw water from the pool of Siloam into golden pitchers. And then by a procession led by the high priest, they would march back to the temple and around the altar while the temp temple choir would sing the Hallel. It's the uh, Psalm 113 through 118. <clears throat> and once the choir reached Psalm 118, the end of the Hallel, every male pilgrim would shake willow and myrtle uh, twigs that were tied together with a palm in their right hand, and he would raise his left hand with a, with a piece of fruit. It was a, a symbolic of the ingathered harvest. And everyone would cry out, give thanks to the Lord three times, and then they would pour these massive amounts of water out at the altar. The point of all this was to remind everyone of the water that God had miraculously provided for a thirsty Israel in the wilderness. And this went on with all of the feasting and celebration for seven straight days. But on the eighth day, the last day, which was considered the great day, everything changed. On the last day, the feasting stopped. The temporary shelters were taken down and the atmosphere took on an entirely different mood than the previous days of celebration as there would be a holy convocation to this great feast. And on that last great day, the people would gather at the altar in a reverent, venerated ceremony. This was the solemn conclusion, not only to this feast, by the way, but to all of the feasts for the entire year. On that last great day, there was no water poured out on the altar. There was no feasting. There was no drinking. Only solemn prayers specifically for water were offered. Why? It was to remind everyone what God had delivered them from in the wilderness and what he'd brought them into. You see, this moment was sacred for the Jews. It was the climax of all of the feasts of the entire year, all of their ceremonies and celebrations, all of their traditions and remembrances, all of the deep held meaning of all that God had done for them. It all, every bit of it culminated into this one holy, hushed, dignified, awe-inspiring moment as the people hungry now and thirsty desperately prayed at the altar for water. Now, just put yourself into that scene for a moment. The reverence, the respect that the people had for that moment, it was holy and sacred to them. And just as they're there, positioned 
around the altar, solemnly praying for water, desperately crying out to God for water. John describes what happened next in verse 37. Again, he says, on the last day of the feast, on the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Just the fact that Jesus stood up at that moment and cried out anything would have been jarring enough, shocking to all of these people in that solemn moment. But on top of all of that, while their minds are fixated on praying for water out of desperate thirst, he shouts out to the crowds of people, recalling, by the way, the well-known passage in Isaiah 55.1. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It puts it in a different perspective, doesn't it? When you realize that the religious Jews didn't understand that he was actually the Messiah, it's not hard to understand why they wanted to kill him. He was completely messing everything up. They had a nice life. They had a nice religion. They had nice ministries, nice ceremonies, and a nice system for earning their salvation as far as they were concerned. And Jesus comes along right in the middle of their most sacred, venerated ceremony on the last day after the, the last great feast as they're praying for water and he shouts, Hey, if you're thirsty, just come to me and drink. In fact, he said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you didn't understand who he was and what he was talking about, which most of them didn't, then it's not hard to understand how incredibly offended they were by him and how threatened they felt because he was offering them what he was saying was an infinitely better alternative to doing what they'd always done before, which was to try and work their way to salvation and fulfillment. He says, hey, if you're thirsty... You don't have to do all of that because I am the fulfillment of all of that. All that you need to do is come to me and drink. And so understandably, he infuriates the religious leaders. And as a result, all kinds of arguments break out among the people and even among the religious leaders because Jesus has just completely offended all of their religious sensibilities by making them a much better offer than anything they'd ever uh, heard or known or had before. So let's finish our text for this morning and then we'll come back to this statement by Jesus and look at it just a little bit closer. So let's read verse 40 to the end of the chapter. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. If you read this in the Greek, they use the Greek word that is uh, the equivalent of ignoramus when they, when they refer to the people. 
They said these stupid ignoramuses, they don't know the law, they're cursed. And then Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So, of course, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right, in order to fulfill the prophecy and uh, scripture in Micah 5, 2. But obviously, these Pharisees didn't realize that. And I'm certain that even if they had, they would have found a way to try and cover that up, too, because they didn't like him messing with their system. And they surely didn't want to have uh, to admit that Jesus being the Christ was even a, a possibility. And so John says that there was a division among them over Jesus. And the word division in verse 43 is the Greek word schisma. It's where we get our word schism from. And it implies this violent dissension here. And so this was not a tame argument. Jesus, in his usual fashion, has created a firestorm among the religious community. You see, you can't encounter Jesus and remain neutral. You either realize the thirst that is within you or you deny that thirst and search for something else. But this schisma was quite the uproar because while some were putting their faith in him, others wanted to kill him. And yet for his part, as flustered as people would become with him, he never forced anyone to follow him. He never used force to have his way. He merely made an offer. He simply offered for people by their own will to come to him for the bread and the water that they really needed. To come to him for the food and drink that truly satisfies for all of eternity. All that Jesus ever did was make them an offer to come to me and drink. And then he stood back and he allowed them to choose. Which is what he's doing. The very same thing today. Let's go back and look at this offer that he makes to us. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Notice he doesn't command everyone to come to him and drink. He says, if you are thirsty, you can come to me and drink. And this is probably the most important and yet least talked about aspect of this offer by Jesus. Because if, if you are not thirsty then you're not going to come to him and drink. The Pharisees were not thirsty. In fact, they were well satisfied as far as they knew with their lives and their religion and their traditions and their routines. They were not thirsty and so they didn't come to Jesus for living water. Okay, if we're not thirsty for God, then we will not have him in our lives. And there are so many people today, and in truth, there always have been people who say they want God in their life. They say they want relationship with him. They say they believe and want to follow him, but there is no evidence of thirst in their lives for Christ. Because it's hard to be thirsty for the living wellspring of Christ when you're constantly drinking your fill from all of the other wells that are available to us. And there are endless wells that we can drink from in our culture that will slake your thirst for a time. And yet none of them can satisfy the way that Jesus can. He's not going to twist your arm to come to him, to drink from him. He is simply making the same offer today that he made on that last great day after this feast. If you are thirsty, if you are thirsty, you can come to me and drink. 
And so, of course, that begs the question of us. Are you thirsty? Or have you been drinking from one well to the next until that well runs dry and then you move on to another? John D. Rockefeller, who at one point was the richest man in the world, uh, was once asked, how much money is enough money? To which he replied, just a little bit more. You see, there is no well. No amount of money, no amount of pleasure, no amount of power, no amount of influence, no amount of respect, no amount of security, no amount of certainty in any pursuit outside of Christ that can ever fully satisfy our spiritual thirst, which is a thirst that is inherently existent in all of us. We just suppress it with other things, temporary things, inadequate things. Because we fear the change that may occur in our lives if we make that choice to drink deeply from his well. We want the benefits of his water without having to actually consume it. And so Jesus stands up when we're dry and when we're thirsty and when we're wanting and he cries out to us, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. And then he goes on to explain what happens once we drink from his well. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he's telling us here that when we drink from his well, he fills us or baptizes us with his spirit, as Jesus put it in Acts 1, 4, and 5, which was promised and prophesied in Joel 2, 28, and witnessed in Acts 2, uh, 1 through 4. And the expression out of his heart, by the way, in this verse, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The out of his heart part of that expression comes from the Greek word koilea, which is literally translated out of his belly. And it's used in Greek literature sometimes figuratively to refer to the heart, but I'm not so sure that the literal translation isn't better here because we drink water into our belly and he's saying out of what you drink in, in this case, his spirit, will come rivers of living water. And so out of that fullness of the spirit that is full in you, we are able to minister through the spirit to others. But that only happens when we drink from the well of his spirit first. And I, again, I know this may be something that you've heard many, many times in church, but please listen with ears to hear and a heart to receive because these words of Christ truly should shake us at our core. If you do not have the spirit of Christ so full inside of you because you've been drinking deeply from him to the point that he's flowing out of you, as Jesus says here, if his spirit is not in you to the point that he's flowing back out of you, then you will never be truly satisfied in this life. You won't be. Because there's nothing in this world that can ever satisfy the way that the spirit of Christ can. Robert Smith Candlish, a great theologian and preacher, once addressed uh, those who drink from the wells of this world, expecting to be satisfied. He said this way, you've been seeking more from the world than it was ever fitted or intended to yield. It is the tabernacle of your pilgrimage. It cannot be a home for your hearts. This world cannot ever satisfy you the way that Jesus can. And yet believing in Jesus 
is far more than an intellectual ascent. There must be a thirst, a desperate thirst to drink in the Spirit of God deeply. Otherwise, we settle. We settle for whatever it is that we're drinking in apart from Him. Okay? Thirst isn't so much a thing in and of itself. Thirst is merely the absence of something else. If anything, thirst is merely the sensation that something critical, something that we need, something that should be there is missing. And so if we allow to allow these words of Christ today to find their way into our hearts, I think we have to ask ourselves, is there something missing in my life? Am I dissatisfied in some way with where my life is spiritually or where it has been going? Is there a sensation that there should be something more, a greater purpose, a deeper meaning, something that satisfies beyond anything that I can experience in this world? Are you spiritually frustrated? Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels? Are you longing for something to finally fulfill you? Look, if that is you, if there is that sensation of lack or dryness deep inside of you, then recognize it for what it is. It is a God-given thirst that can only be satisfied by drinking in from the deep well that is the Spirit of Christ. Drink from it. Drink from it, my friend, and drink until you are so full that he's flowing back out of you to others. Because you will not find the ultimate satisfaction that you're searching for by drinking from any other well. And so he's calling us today, okay? He's calling to all who are thirsty with a simple invitation. Come to me and drink. Let's pray.